When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 69. podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Start scouting for the fall bird season today by downloading the Onyx Hunt app from the Apple iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with Onyx. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You haven't experienced Grouse Camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com and by dog trick callers. I've got my hands on the newly created and soon to be released T&B Duel. Users of the T&B 2500 or 2700 system will know what I'm talking about. This is a training and beeper locator e-caller setup. The Duel now has two separate individual controls for both of the callers. So if you have two dogs, you got a beeper and a training collar on both of them. You can control each collar separately with its own set of buttons and its own 127-level rheostat dial. So you've got independent stimulation on both collars, and you've got access to them both at the same time, where previously you had to switch back and forth between the collars. They did a killer job with this setup. 
It's an awesome system. I don't even know if you can buy it yet. I've got it. If you're familiar with Dr. Products, it's got the same level of quality. It's the same build. It's a really quality setup, and it will be available soon, later this summer, in time for hunting season. So if you are in the need of a new e-collar system or you're curious about this, look for the new T&B dual system coming very soon. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about Gordian Sons Outfitters, the gear, the guides, and the expertise by visiting GordianSons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomole design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to Dakota283.com and use one of two promo codes we have for you right now. P-U-F-I. Get you a free forever insert with the purchase of any G3 kennel or... P-U-D-D will get you a free dine and dash with the purchase of any kennel from Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is John G. John, thank you for sharing a recent episode of the podcast. Probably got the t-shirt headed your way real soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that in a number of ways, including leaving the podcast a rating, leave it a review in the iTunes app or wherever you listen to it, subscribe to the podcast make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get every episode right away if you're not a subscriber you have to wait until itunes or stitcher or google they refresh the feed you'll get the latest episode but if you subscribe you'll get the episode as soon as i hit the publish button share the podcast or send us some feedback i love to hear from the listeners send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right let's go Today's episode featuring repeat guest. You may be familiar with him if you are a loyal listener of the podcast, Greg Elliott from dogsanddoubles.com. Fair warning, we are all over side-by-side shotguns on this episode. If you don't like them, this episode might not be for you. But if you're interested in them or you just love guns, you're going to like this episode. Greg is fantastic at what he does. He's very knowledgeable. I love talking to him. Today, we dive deep on an article that he recently wrote for the Project Upland magazine, you may have already read it, regarding the original Ansley H. Fox shotgun compared to the latest release from the Savage Arms Company, the Savage Fox A-Grade, which is a gun that is actually produced by Connecticut Shotgun. If your head is spinning, stay tuned, because Greg will fill you in on the complete story today. We get a little bit nerdy, talking about shotgun actions, lockup mechanisms, down into the weeds. You guys know I love this stuff. I can't help myself. But if you love side-by-sides, vintage doubles, shotgun history, the history of the companies in America and Europe, I think you're going to love this episode. Give it a shot. We even talk about live pigeon shooting and some other weird stuff. Let's welcome into the conversation from dogsanddoubles.com, Greg Elliott. Greg Elliott, welcome back to the Project Upland podcast. You're starting to become a 
you kind of making a regular appearance on the show, and I love having you on, and I know the listeners do. How are you today, man? Doing great, Nick. Uh, just like to be back, and uh, just like to talk about guns. Yeah, absolutely. Always looking forward to it. Summertime in, in New England. What's what's keeping you busy right now? Are you training dogs? Are you shooting guns? Or are you just writing magazine articles? Uh, so some of all of the above, basically. So I've been doing some... Uh, so some magazine article writing, you know, um, but not on, some other magazines other than Project Upland right now. Uh, I've been doing some shooting, you know, where I, go out, I get out to the club to do, uh, shoot some sporting clays. Not a ton. Uh, I'd like to do more, but you know, only time to do so much. And as far as the dogs go, um, I, mean, I run my dogs a lot as far as training them. Uh, one of my dogs is going to go off to training next weekend. I take her up to my trainer. Um, and I've been working with my other one. Uh, so yeah, I'm just, you know, kind of easing, getting ready for the, uh, getting ready for the fall, coming up with plans, you know, other than that, just working too, you know, trying to make a living. Yeah. So, yeah. I think, I think easing yeah. all that in, but in between that and trying to keep the wife happy. Exactly. Yep. It's a, it's always a, it's always a balance in their, their time is a finite resource. We all know that. So it's, yes. we've got, we've got these things that we like to keep busy with and we try to do them uh, to the fullest extent, but it's, it's always a challenge, which is probably, uh, probably part of what makes it fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you go to the sporting clays range, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but uh, what do you, what do you like to shoot? Are you mixing it up all the time, shooting different stuff or are you, do you have a, do you have a dedicated sporter with 32 inch barrels that weighs 10 pounds? I mean, what kind of a guy are you, Greg? So I'm usually mixing stuff up. So I take, you know, I'm always taking something different over there to try it out and check it out. And, uh, but I do have a, I have a dedicated target gun and it's a, I think it's, so it's a, it's a, it's a Russian gun, and ah. it was actually made during the Soviet era. And it's either like a Tula, I think it's a Tula is the, is the maker of it. But it's basically, it's this gun that the, uh, the Russians made in the 60s for their Olympic trap and skeet team. It's an over and under. And uh, that's my sort of go-to target gun. It's a big, heavy, you know, over and under. It's probably 8 pounds, 28-inch uh, barrels, super tight chokes. It's a really odd gun, very strange, but it's beautiful. It's really well made. It handles really well. It's just unusual. You don't see many of them over here in the States, and uh, they don't, I don't think they made that many of them, uh, but that's my go-to gun. I, I've, I've had other ones, too. I've had Parazzi's and uh, all sorts of different over-unders. I've had you know great big uh, like Parker pigeon guns that I used to shoot targets with, uh, Boss pigeon guns, old hammer guns that were pigeon guns. Also, you know, I, I mix it up, but then, you know, I always go back to my, uh, my, my, I call it my, uh, beast from the East, my Soviet <laughs> target gun. I like that. That's um, cool. <laughs> yeah. I like to take it out just because no one's ever seen one and it's so peculiar. It's just, if you're, if you're into guns, it's just, it's just a weird creature to see. Yeah. So. No, that's cool. So I have known what sporting clays is for a fairly long time, but I'm also pretty new to actually shooting regular. This is the first year that I've, that I've got a group of people that I sh go shoot with, uh, you know, every week and I enjoy it. I love it. And I'm shooting my bird guns obviously. Cause I just, I want to shoot those and I'm just having fun with it. I don't have expectations. So I've thought about, I've had thoughts about, Oh, I wonder what it would be like to shoot a, you know, a dedicated target gun. And typically what you see is an over under, with longer barrels, typically heavier, and that's that's going to take a lot of recoil out of high volume shooting. 
give you a good swing, good follow through. I mean, that seems to be the gun of choice. And I have enjoyed listening to the uh, Behind the Break podcast, which is really all about sporting clays. And so I've I've heard those guys talk about their Parazzi's and Kriegoffs and and choke setups. And it's very technical, you know, it's high, it's it's high tech stuff. Do you enjoy shooting that gun? I mean, is it it's a different feel than your bird gun for sure? Yeah, it's a totally different feel. And it's a clay smasher. That's what it's for. It does it really well. You know, it's got a big full pistol grip on it. It's got a big forend on it. Uh there's a lot to hold on to. And you shoot it, even though it's still sporting clays, you shoot it a lot differently than I would ever shoot a bird gun. But I like shooting it. I'm not a, I'm not a huge target shooter. Sure. Uh, I go out and do, I'll go out and shoot a couple boxes. There, I have a beautiful club that, that's not far from my house. And they have a great, they have a great range. They have, uh, they have five stand, they have trap, they have skeet. But I just never, I've never been one of those people that's really been, uh, I don't know, all that enthralled with breaking targets. Yeah. You know, like I said, I'll go over and shoot a couple boxes just to try out a gun, get a feel for it. But I'm not nuts about it. You know, I'm not shooting a couple hundred rounds a week or doing anything like that. Um, and I do it socially too, just to go hang out with guys that are into guns and see stuff. And but the gun stuff, the ones I like the most, my favorite sort of guns to uh, to break targets were their old pigeon guns. So guns that were made for live pigeon shooting. There's sort of a sort of a balance between like your uh, your big heavy Parazzi's kind of stuff, sort of your modern target guns. They're in a in a game gun. They tend to the old school ones tend to be a little more dynamic, um, a little livelier. Even though nowadays the guys that shoot, you know, guys that are serious live pigeon shooters shoot, you know, for the most part big Kriegoffs, big Parazzi's, those kind of guns. But you know, I, I like the guns that are a little more. Uh, a little more dynamic, a little livelier, and it's just a little lot, a little lighter. Some of those guns that the guy, like you're saying, the guys that shoot sporting clays now, some of those guys shoot like nine pound guns. Yeah, uh, which is nothing I want to be lugging around. I know why they do it. I get why they do it. Right. I just don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's the. It's two different approaches for two different end goals. You know, your your my end goal is to have fun. I want to break some clays. I want more repetitions, mounting, shooting, swinging my bird guns. And I'm not as concerned with the number on the paper at the end of the day, whereas somebody shooting sporting clays and tournaments and stuff, they're, uh, they are con- very concerned about that number on the paper. I'm glad you brought up the, the pigeon gun. Cause that's what I wanted to ask you about a little bit. And you explained it again. I didn't know much about that until I read Michael McIntosh's book about foxes the finest gun in the world and he talked a lot about pigeon guns in there because ansley h fox was a pretty top-notch pigeon shot and it sounds like from what i gathered and read you know back in the day they were shooting side by sides bird guns most most guys were shooting side by sides and but a pigeon gun was a specific kind of gun and i think you hit the high notes in that it would have been a heavier gun oftentimes with a pistol grip so you maintain a very consistent grip on the gun perhaps a high rip i don't know what else do you know about those old yeah. pigeon guns well so they were definitely uh up until world war one they were pretty much all side by sides they were also I, i've seen pigeon guns pigeon guns with straight grips pigeon guns with round knobs pigeon guns with full pistol grips with beaver tails but they were pretty much you know before world war one they were pretty much all side by sides Sometimes they had 28-inch barrels. Sometimes they had 32-inch barrels. You know, uh, they're kind of they're kind of all over the place. There's, and I think some of that was 
uh, personal preference, you know, just like it is today. I think, um, and some of it's kind of faddish, you know, nowadays guys like really long barrels, you know, 20 years ago, they like shorter barrels that it kind of comes and goes with that stuff. And people back in, you know, 1900 killed plenty of live pigeons with guns that had 28 inch barrels. So, uh, but the guns themselves were heavier. They're probably seven and a half, eight pound guns. And that's typically the loads they, the loads you use for live pigeon shooting are heavier. Um, I think, one and a quarter ounce is the official max you can use, I think, for live pigeon shooting. Back when the, you know, once the, uh, once the rules became formalized and the uh, shooting became really competitive, there were, you were restricted to certain types of, uh, to loads that you could put in your guns. So, uh, pretty much anyone that shot it, uh, competitively was using a 12 gauge. And like I said, I think it was one and a quarter ounces, um, probably shooting number sixes or something like that. Uh, but those guns, as far as ribs go, uh, most of those guys probably had a file. Usually a real pigeon gun will have a f- real wide rib on it that's file cut. So when you mount the gun, it sort of gives you this big plane to look down. And they file cut it so that when the gun heats up um, and the sun hits it and stuff like that, you won't have glare coming off the rib um, so it doesn't distract you. And uh, typically... The pigeon guns you see from that era are largely double trigger guns. Single triggers really weren't um, that popular then. They were just coming into uh, their own. It isn't until after more or after World War II that the uh, single triggers are reliable enough to become popular on pigeon guns. Because live pigeon shooting is all about making money. It's all about winning. And so the one thing you want to make sure, your live pigeon gun has to be completely reliable. So if you have a single trigger and it fails... There's no, uh, no one's going to excuse that when you're live pigeon shooting. You simply don't win. So that's the other reason. The other thing is a lot of live pigeon guns don't have safeties on them. They don't have any safety at all. And that's another reason why. That's just another element that can get in the way of when you're shooting. So it can disrupt you when you're shooting. You can accidentally put it on. And then it could also just be something that could break. Uh, so a lot of times you won't see those on those guns. That's not to say that they, uh, there are true pigeon guns that have safeties, but overall, the guns that like Ansley Fox was shooting, you know, he was probably shooting, you know, you know, seven three quarter pound twelve gauge. I don't know if he shot a straight grip gun, but when he started making his uh, his early AH Fox guns, and they were that were sort of uh, for live pigeon shooters. Those, you know, they were thirty inch barrel guns, twelve gauges, uh, straight grip, double triggers. Uh, a lot of times they don't have ejectors because you don't need ejectors when you're shooting live pigeons. It's just another thing that could go wrong. Um, but again, they, you know, they had super tight chokes on them and they were built to take a beating too. That's the other thing. So, cause, uh, obviously they shot the guns a lot uh, during the competitions and live pigeon shooting used to be a huge sport in the United States. And, uh, so the guys that did it, did it a lot. You definitely get a sense of that reading the Macintosh book, and I'm sure there are other, probably other books that are really dedicated maybe to that history. I'm not sure. That'd be, that'd be a pretty interesting read, but I suppose the competition and the publicity around those events, I mean, you could tell it was big in the time, like it was something that would be in the papers. That probably, and the fact that those guns needed to be able to take a beating, that probably fueled some of the, you know, that initial gun development in America, the real quality guns needing a gun that could hold up and stand the test of time that probably had a fair bit to do with it would you say oh absolutely yeah and they and they same thing in the uk and throughout europe um gun makers 
so when they when they published results in the newspapers because they used to publish the results um it used to be front page news in some papers these big the big national competitions and uh international competitions they would publish you know the shooter's name uh if it was international where he came from they'd oftentimes publish the gun they were using okay too. Cool. So it was just like today, you know, it's in, you know, like, uh, you know, professional sports athletes, you know, they, they have the brand name on their shoes. Everyone knows what they're wearing. It's the same type of sponsorship. And people, uh, knew that that was a proving ground for those types of guns. A gun, if you were a professional pigeon shooter, the gun you were shooting was going to be quality. You weren't going to have junk because it could get in the way of you winning. One last thing on the pigeon gun before we kind of, we'll transition off, but it is a nice segue because of the Ansley Fox tie. But, as far as a pigeon load, they're heavier loads. And, you know, I, I was looking the other day at RST shot shells and they had, you know, they have some loads that are called a pigeon load. And I think they're just, they're just a heavier load. Is there any other thing that would, a pigeon load would be different? You know, if you're looking at RST today, like a one ounce 28 gauge load, they call it a pigeon load. It's just a heavy, like the heaviest load you'd shoot out of a 28 gauge. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about pigeon shooting to okay. know. I mean, pigeon shooting. So here, I'm looking at these. So, so they're 12 gauge pigeon loads, a two and three quarter inch shell. It's a one and one quarter ounce, and it's a 1300 velocity. Yeah. I mean, this is. It's probably a little. That's you know, that's kind of a standard heavy load, two and three quarter inch load. That's a, you know, an English gun that's proof for two and three quarter inch chambers. That's kind sort of a standard load to put in it. But I'm sure that guys who are really serious about pigeon shooting, you know, they probably have their own recipes for sure. how they mix and match these things. But it, it's still regulated. There's only so much uh, the type of uh, sh- I think it's probably the type of shot you can use and the size of the loads. As uh, there's still rules surrounding that. But it's like you know, it's like any sport. Even within those rules, everybody's got their own little spin. I'm sure on how they're loading you know, putting together their loads and different things they're using and wads and all that kind of stuff and uh, chokes and yeah, it gets pretty specific. And there's a lot of money on the line. I and mean, those, those guys, you know, professional pigeon shooters in the U.S., you know, those events, you can win tens of thousands of dollars. So it's pretty serious business. Well, that's enough about pigeon shooting for today. Uh, it's, a, it's a neat one. I might have, to, uh, might have to do a little bit more reading and research on it. You don't know any, any books off the top of your hand that, that kind of talk about it, do you? Yeah, there is a book actually by a guy named Cyril Adams, and I feel like I've heard that name. So Cyril Adams wrote a book called Lock, Stock, and oh, Barrel. Okay. I yeah, think. I was just looking at, uh, at that book the other day. Yeah, so he just wrote a book about pigeon shooting, and Cyril Adams is one of the you know premier authorities in the world on pigeon pigeon shooting. He lives in Texas. He, I think he was a, he was a world champion pigeon shooter a couple times. Cool guy. He just wrote a great book about it talks about the history of it and where pigeon shooting is today. There's not a lot of live pigeon shooting going on anymore. Right. Uh, um, and there's only, there's not a lot of states in the U S where they, where it goes on and where it goes on is very difficult to find out about. Yeah. I've heard that same thing. And I think people can kind of connect the dots, put two and two together that when you can shoot clay pigeons, which I'm guessing is not a coincidence why they started be you know being called clay pigeons. Why would you shoot a bunch of live pigeons? Um, you can see where the controversy could bubble up pretty quick there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they do a lot of it in Spain, and if you go on, yep. uh, If you go on YouTube and Google 
I mean, you have to uh, translate live pigeon shooting into Spanish and then search that on YouTube, and you'll get videos of guys doing it in Spain. There's still uh, there's it, there's clubs where they actively practice it, and um, they let people videotape it and stuff like that. There's clubs in the U.S. that do it, but uh, no one's putting videos up and no one's videotaping it. And if you can, it, I've been trying to get an invitation to a live pigeon shoot for years. I can't even get an invitation. I can't even get people to admit it happens. It's so it's so it's such a closed circle of people and. Uh, <laughs> Well, so. if anybody's out there listening and they want to give you their their first opportunity, they they know how to get in touch with me and and I can connect yeah, you with me, Greg. Yeah, let me know. I'd love to, I'd love to check it out. Yeah, we'll so, we'll keep it, we'll keep it discreet. It. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that. If that's not Greg Elliott's pro tip of the day, how to use Google Translate to type <laughs> right. to Spanish pigeon shooting and search for videos on YouTube. I mean, that's quality stuff. I love where this is going, Greg. <laughs> All right, man. Well. We did mention Ansley H. Fox, and he is going to be at the center of our discussion a little bit today. In the last issue of the Project Upland Magazine, issue 1.2, still on newsstands. You can find it at Barnes & Noble and uh, Bass Pro, or you can always order it online. Greg Elliott had an article breaking down, discussing the new Savage Fox A-grade gun that was released uh, a year or two ago by Savage. Uh, the guns were made by another company, which we will get into, and comparing that to the original Philadelphia Fox made by the A.H. Fox Company, owned and started by, well, owned for a, really a brief time and started by the company's namesake, Ansley H. Fox. So, Greg, tell us a little bit about we don't have to go back in the whole history of Fox because I think we've talked about that a little bit before. But start with the new gun and how that how that story kind of developed and how those guns hit the market in the last year or so. Okay, yeah. So it was 2017. Uh, Savage Arms, which is a you know pretty famous American gun maker. Yeah. Um, they wanted to get back into the side by side business, and they had been in the side by side business before. They had actually owned. They bought the A.H. Fox company from Ansley H. Fox and Ansley's investors. And they did that, I want to say they did that like the end of the 20s. I think you're 1929. right. 1929. Yep. 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 1929 they did that. But they, uh, they, got out of the sav- they got out of the side-by-side business in like the 60s or 70s, maybe early 80s. They made a gun called the Model B, I think it was. Uh, but anyway, they got out of the business. They wanted to get back into the business. Um, they wanted to offer a side-by-side again. They wanted to use the Fox name again. And uh, so they went looking around. And uh, what happened is they, even though they had uh, built the Ansley H. Fox versions of those guns at one time, they had stopped doing that. And they had um, the rights to build those guns had passed on to someone else. Someone else, I think, I think the way it works is a company called the Connecticut Shotgun Manufacturing Company, CSMC. Um, I, they may have bought the licensing right. They may have bought the rights or licensed the rights or for whatever reason, uh, they had been making and they still make the official Ansley H Fox version of the Fox shotgun. And, uh, that gun today, they've been building it for, let's see, 93, since 1993, they've been building, uh, that gun and 
Today, they're still making it, and I think the prices on those guns start at about $25,000, and they go up from there. Yeah, that's So that right, gun, yeah. like I said, is that's the true Fox gun. It's made the same way Ansley made them. And that means it's the same, it's the same uh, components and same, same design, you know? Yeah, um, same style, but there's probably some, they probably use different metals and stuff, don't they? Well, yes. yeah. So it's probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's a better gun nowadays. Right. Um, they use, they use uh, better manufacturing techniques. They use better metals. Um, it's a superior gun just because of, uh, you know, there's a hundred years of uh, advancement since yeah. the Ansley thing. Yeah. Um, but it's also a lot more expensive. Like I said, I think those guns start at 25000 and they go up from there. So anyway... Savage obviously just couldn't, they couldn't offer those guns because that wasn't the price point they wanted to be at. And those guns too, they're just, um, I don't know how many guns um, CSMC makes a year, but they're not building that many. Right. Uh, So Savage needed another alternative. And so what they decided to do was they went with another gun that Connecticut shotgun builds, uh, builds, which is called the RBL. And that's a side, you know, that's a side by side that they started building, I want to say, like, they started making that gun, like, 2004, 2005. Yeah, um, it was, yeah, the 20-gauge launch edition was, there's a there's a video on YouTube, actually. It's the original 20-gauge launch video from Connecticut Shotgun. It's kind of funny to watch it. I was I, I watched it over the winter because I was looking into RBLs, and I actually have one now. I also learned RBL stands for round action box lock, which makes sense oh, for, there you go. for what the gun is. Uh, but that video is out there, and, yeah, it's... It's two thousand four, five, six, seven, somewhere right in there. Yeah, and when that gun came out, uh, I mean, that's so. So that gun, David uh, Connecticut Shotgun has had been making that gun for a while. It's a uh, you know that gun's made with mon- modern manufacturing techniques, so it's all precision engineering. There's CNCing in it. It's all uh, high tech steels, and there's different coatings and finishes on it. So it's a modern gun. Um, has modern dimensions on it, and so. Savage, basically what they did is they took that gun, uh, they made some slight tweaks to it to kind of make that gun look more like a traditional Fox, and that is now the Savage Fox A-grade. It doesn't look exactly like a true Fox, but it looks kind of like a true Fox. And like I said in my article, I think it's, in a lot of ways, a much better gun than the old school Foxes. It's interesting what they did, and the Fox story is a little bit... You know, the Fox story is kind of, I don't want to call it a sad one, but it's just an interesting one in that, you know, Ansley developed this, you know, what is such a highly regarded gun still today. You know, the guns that he designed and built are still very highly regarded today. And he got into kind of trouble, you know, and had to sell his company too soon, I think a lot of people would say. And Savage took it over and whatever the market influences and stuff were at the time, you know, Savage, they kept building the guns that that the Fox, the original Fox company was making for a little while. So you had these guns called the transition guns and sort of the, you know, the early Savage guns, which maintain a lot of the same characteristics of the, the old Philadelphia Foxes. And I guess that could be considered lingo. If you're not totally familiar, the, the Ansley Fox company was in Philadelphia at certain Philadelphia, then Savage, when Savage bought it, it moved to Utica, New York. So a lot of times, if you're looking at Fox guns online, you'll see people say, a Philly Fox gun, implying that it's an original, or a Utica gun, implying that it's an, an early Savage gun. 
And then they stopped making those guns and they came out with another gun called the Fox Model B, which I don't know a whole lot about them. I know you had one, Greg. Uh, I yeah. think I think they are they are certainly not as highly regarded as the other Fox guns. They from a looks and aesthetics wise perspective, people don't care for them as much as the older guns, but they're still a quality gun, I think, but it's just they're in a totally different category. And so at that point, that's where people kind of feel like, you know, Fox was kind of lost. And aside from the Connecticut Shotgun Company building these reproduction models that the originals for, you know, a couple tens of thousands of dollars, the old Fox hasn't returned. Now, Savage brought back this this A-grade, but a lot of people that are really big fans of the old guns kind of say, well, you know, you've you made an RBL look like a Fox and... That's really that's kind of where where it gets interesting because the RBL is is considered a very good gun for the money as it stands for a lot of things that you mentioned you know a hundred years of of progression and advancement CSMC's goal as far as I understand it was to make the best quality side by side they could at a very affordable price point when those guns first came out I think in the mid two thousands uh, first decade of two thousands they were like the launch price was like either 2000 or 2500 bucks. I mean it was it was pretty low and now the guns sell for quite a bit more. Um and people still feel like you get a lot of gun for the money. Yeah, absolutely they are. They're they're nice guns. I and mean, they they've had uh he said there's been some growing pains and you know, they kind of had some bugs to work out here and there on yeah. them. Uh but overall they're they're a good solid reliable gun. They're Anson and Dealey box lock actions, the most uh probably the mo- most popular side-by-side shotgun action in the world. It's, you know, it's a very uh, tried and true design, and it's just well-made overall. Uh, they're just solid, dependable doubles. And I think, you know, like, I think, like I said, you know, that, that's, what I, that's what I like about them, and that's why I prefer them to the, uh, to the real foxes. Um, that's one of the reasons. But... Uh, I don't think there's, you know, you really can't go wrong with one of those RBLs. They're just, if you're going to get a, a new gun about the, I mean, the only thing that you could argue is probably bad about them is they're, you know, they, like you said, they're probably, I think a brand new one's at least five grand these days. Yeah. And uh, the Savage Fox A grades, I think four or five grand. Yeah. And I think the Savage Fox A grades are coming down in price because they, from what I've gathered on a few uh, internet forums is they're not, perhaps not selling it, you know, like hotcakes and, you were starting to see some guns that are new but being sold by dealers for, you know, under that under that $4,000 mark. We paused this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Apanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field-tested and family-approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Epanuel Bertones for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland podcast. Yeah, no, I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised that they're having a, it's a tough gun to, I understand from like, I think they almost did themselves a disservice by calling it a fox, but they, just because I, under, I understand why some people are turned off by that, yeah. but I think that it's wrong to... I, the gun needs to be considered on its own merits, and it, when you look at it that way, it's a it's a really nice gun. Yeah. It's a really nice gun, and it comes in, you know, it comes in a nice case. It has all these accessories. It's got choke tubes. It's just, it's a it's 
Sigmanite, I think at you know four to five grand, it's a really good deal, and it's probably it's probably the best one of the best uh, new side by sides you can get out there for under ten grand. Yeah, so. I think from what I know, a lot of people would certainly agree with that, and that's where it's just it's an interesting situation. It's an interesting move by Savage what they did, and if you're if you know the Fox history and you've been a fan. And, you know, I'm, I've talked about a lot. I'm very new to the game, but I have, I like to research and I've, and I've read the history of the Fox company. So I know a lot more today than I did, you know, a couple of years ago. But if you were to walk into the Savage Fox A grade, knowing nothing previously about Fox and having no preconceived notions about what a Fox was, could be, or should be, you'd still be walking into a hell of a gun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think if you didn't if you didn't have all that history, if you didn't have all that knowledge and I handed you a real fox and they handed you the A the new Savage A grade, you'd probably like the Savage gun more. So, you know, we we bring with the vintage guns, I know that I bring a lot of what I like about them is the history, the story, it's the myth. Yeah. It's all of that that I'm bringing to the table when I like those guns, but when you actually break a lot of those guns down and you look at them, and you consider how they're made, what they are, they're just not at they're just not that great, and uh, that's not to say the old foxes are really nice. Um, they're nice guns. They're just the amount of money that they get for them these days. It's just it'd be really tough for me to, you know, it, it's so a twenty gauge A grade real fox, you know, from nineteen twenty nowadays. That's a four to five thousand dollar gun in decent shape, you know. Yeah. The same amount of money as the Savage Fox A grade, and uh, it's not a better gun. It's you know not at all. Uh, if the gun was you know eighteen hundred dollars, I'd like it a lot, but I just don't. It's just not. It, it just there uh, to me. There once you've had enough experience with them that you can get through the sort of nostalgia, you just see that you see them for what they are. You know that has been consistent in what you've talked about on this podcast from the very beginning, you know, I've had you on here twice before and you are a very discerning customer as far as value, you know, what you're getting for the quality and craftsmanship for your dollar. And while you acknowledge, you appreciate the history and you respect it, you're not afraid to call out when, you know, guns are overvalued simply because of that history and that allure. And that is definitely the case with Parkers and Foxes. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, that's what the market is. And it's kind of makes it, it kind of makes it fun, really. Um, I guess not for the guys that, that are trying to buy them, but uh, they do demand a value because of the, the history, the American history and tradition of those guns and those companies. But from a value perspective and the guns that you can buy if you start looking at guns that were made overseas or a gun that's made today like the RBL or the Savage Fox A-grade. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we've learned quite a bit in metallurgy and technology in order to make these guns over the last hundred years. Now, the cool thing about guns is that a lot of the, the actual design, like the mechanisms that these guns function with, a lot of those were really perfected a long time ago. And the the gun makers today, like that's what we'll kind of get into, the CSMC or the Savage Fox A-grade is built on an action design that was perfected a long, long time ago. So the the improvements that CSMC is making, they're, they're, they're incremental improvements in the metals and 
you know, small things, but that gun lockup design, that was perfected quite a while ago, wasn't it, Greg? Yeah, it was invented 1875, and it was pretty much, by the 1890s, it was uh, pretty much as refined as it got. There's a little, there's some tweaks that have been made to it since then, since to, to that design since then, sort of to make it, uh, some things to make it uh, simpler to make with machines, uh, but also like the CM, the RBL Savage A, Savage Fox A grade has a, uh, it has like these little retaining springs inside of it to keep some lever components in it um, in positions, so it doesn't rattle around like an early, like some old. Uh, Anson and Dealey box lock actions do, but that's sort of probably the most popular design in the world. You cut out there for a second, Greg. Are you still there? Can you can you hear me? Yeah, I'm still here. Can okay. you hear me? Uh, yeah, I got you. Um, I don't know what happened. I think, yeah, my speaker's still on. Okay. All right, we're good. So let's talk about, we've, we've kind of touched on the similarities between the two Fox guns, the original and the Savage A-grade. The similarities are, for the most part, cosmetic and one could argue that the similarities category is pretty you know they're side-by-side shotguns they're configured in kind of the same way as maybe some of the originals but there aren't a whole lot of similarities we've covered the fact that it's basically a different gun that was made to look kind of like a fox and savage branded and marketed as the savage fox a grade Let's talk about the differences, and we don't need to go on and on about this, but we started talking about the actions. So I want to talk Anson and Dealey box lock action a little bit <clears throat> versus the action of the original Fox and really the kind of the lockups, what makes them different. So the original Fox, let's see, it's a simpler design than the new Fox, the new Savage Fox. It cocks, it, so it, overall it uses fewer components. It locks up differently and it cocks differently. One of the things it does is, so it's hard to describe this. Right. Um, it uses it uses a single cocking lever to cock the um, hammers, whereas the uh, the new one uses uh, two levers. And of course, the original Fox probably its most distinguishing feature is it has a rotary top hook. So it has this extension on the barrels that sticks out, and there's a little hole in the, uh, the top hook that is rectangular-shaped, and that extension fits into the top of the action. And then there's this hook that comes up and sort of like fish hooks into that opening, and that's how the gun's locked up and secured to the action. That's sort of the most distinguishing feature, you know, when people see foxes. Yep. That design, uh, there's some, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad design. It's very simple. It's very reliable because of the way it cocks, um, with a single, um, cocking arm. I think it's a single cocking arm. Yeah. It, uh, it allows the action to be very slim, very trim. The actions are on foxes are small and, you know, they overall, they're very well proportioned. Um, and that's part of, you know, foxes, the old foxes, um, they're very graceful guns because of that, because yep. these, because the actions are so small. And they did a good job of, um, especially on the Philadelphia guns, of scaling everything properly. And so they just look, they look nice from a distance, I always say. And if I hold them back and look at the lines on them, uh, they're really graceful. And that's a big difference between the old guns and the new ones. The new Fox gun isn't anywhere near as elegant. That uh, Anson and Dealey action requires just, 
It requires, it has more componentry inside of it. It, uh, does, it has a pretty sliding bolt on the bottom that locks, uh, the barrels to the action. Um, so it's, it has a, that system requires more space in the action to work. It requires a bigger action. And because of all those things, it's, uh, the gun itself just doesn't have those sleek trim proportions. Okay. That's, that's, those are kind of the two things that I wanted to talk about the, the lockup. So the lockup on the original Fox, you have the, you have the barrel extension and, and I, I do realize that it's probably a little bit tough for people to understand. I, I own both of these guns, so I can, I can visualize it a little bit better, but it's not uncommon. You see a, an extension of the rib that goes into the receiver or the action and, Sometimes, you know, in some some of the Continental guns, some of the other guns, English guns, it's a greener cross bolt. So it sounds like a greener cross bolt is doing the same thing, but it's different than I, I never realized that the Fox was kind of like a fish hook thing that hooks into that hole on the rib extension of the barrels. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, so if you take it out, it's like this little cylinder and it's got like, uh, it's got an opening on it. And when you close the gun, that that cylinder uh, rolls up into the top of extension. That's how it locks down. And one of the things it's able to do is as it wears, it kind of, um, it, uh, let's see, how do I describe this? That hook slides over more and more to maintain the lockup of the gun. And while that happens, the top lever moves more and more to the center because the two are connected. So that's why, you know, you see old foxes and that guys want to know where the top lever is because what they're trying to do is they're trying to gauge how much wear that is in that top hook extension, yeah. you know, how much wear it is seen. So it's not a bad way to lock up a gun. Uh, it's, you know, they got it from, uh, Ansley got it from L.C. Smith, same way an L.C. Smith locks up, and they were doing it way before he was. And uh, I always felt that... Um, both Elsie Smith probably got the idea from Greener, and I've always felt that the Ansley Fox gun is a what he did is basically knocked off a Greener because he would the Greeners were extremely popular in the U.S. Um, before 1900. Um, before there were tar- tariffs that came into effect at the end of the 19th century. Before that, the guns were really popular, extremely popular with uh, live pigeon shooters. Ansley would have definitely seen those guns and been exposed to them. And I always felt like he looked at it and figured there was a simpler way to do this. And that's what he came up with. I think he was very inspired, which is a good way to go. He's a smart guy. He saw an opportunity to do that. Right. And that's where that, that's where that design came from. But the only thing, the thing about the top hook though. So first you have that extension sticking out of the barrel, which is kind of annoying. It's not too bad for the way most Americans shoot because we don't do, it's not like in uh, the UK, we don't do driven shoots where you're standing in one place shooting, you know, a hundred rounds, uh, one after another, constantly loading the gun and unloading it. And that type of a situation, that little extension can make it a little more difficult to get the shells out and put new shells in. So, you know, if, if you're just a bird shooter, you like, you know, if you're grouse shooting in New England, you're going to shoot a shot and you're going to open your gun. It's, you know, doesn't really get in your way, but it's really not that attractive. Um, the other thing about it is that hook can wear and it can just make the guns feel sometimes on old foxes. I find when you go to open them, those, that connection can kind of grind because the barrels are kind of opening at the same time that the hook is pulling out of the, um, out of the slot in the, in the extension. Does that make sense? Yep. So just that connection, it's just not the greatest, it's not the most positive connection. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a, a really distinct on and off. And, 
that's one of the things I dislike about Foxes. I just don't like the way they, the way they open and uh, the way they close. But it's, you know, like I said, it's not a bad way to do it. The way it's positioned, that hook is positioned away from um, what's called the, the cross pin on the action. From like an engineering point of view, it's a good place to put it to lock the guns up. So it's a sound design. It's just not the, uh, say the the Ansley design, the Anson and Dealey design is a better design, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So so the Fox would then would you would you say that the original Fox is that would that be a single bite lockup? It's just one locking mechanism. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so then that's where we transition to. Oh, and actually, I did want to comment on the. I had no idea about that whole rib extension thing. I was just reading an article the other day. I'm pretty sure it was on this website called Chuck Hawks. It's kind of a weird website. That yeah, my, yeah. Yeah, my buddy Garrett turned me on to it. And there's there's some cool stuff on there about shotguns. Um, and he, he was talking, one of the articles I was reading, they were they mentioned that there was a, a desire in guns, you know, typically English or overseas guns to have a clean breech face no rib extension for that reloading purpose uh, of like driven shooting. But again, like you said, if that's not your thing, you know, rib extension isn't going to bother somebody. And oftentimes you'll see guns that have two or three lockup designs, including a rib extension one and, and perhaps an Anson and Dealey lock under the barrels. But, but let's go there. Let's talk the Anson and Dealey, how that locks up underneath the barrels. That one's, you don't really see it as much. So I always kind of have a hard time understanding that one, but you've got two, basically two, they call them lumps that stick down off the barrels and those lumps have slots in them. So when the barrels go down, what happens there? So, uh, so when the barrels go down, there's this thing called the bolt. So you imagine the barrels come down, the, the, the lumps stick out from the bottom of the barrels vertically. Okay. Yeah. And then there's the bites in the lumps, which are the little slots, you know, sort of little uh, rectangular grooves that are into them. Yeah. Those, so the barrels come down into the action. The bolt then slides forward and locks into those bites. So the thing to remember, though, so the original Anson and Dealey design, the first wet, so the, that went into Wesley Richards created the Anson and Dealey box lock. Anson and Dealey worked for Wesley Richards, the yeah. gun maker. They patented it. That's the creation of the gun. The very first Anson and Dealey Wesley Richards box locks didn't lock up that way. Ah, they only okay. had they had a single hook. They're actually uh, they're actually a little more like a, uh, a fox. They had a single. They had basically had a rib extension, more like a doll's head rib extension with a slot in it, and uh, that's how those guns locked up. And what happened was that basically after the first decade or so of making them, maybe not even that long, Wesley Richards, Wesley Richards realized that wasn't the, the best way to do it. And they moved on. And that's when they added the Purdy sliding bolt. Okay. And you still see Wesley Richards still have those doll heads extensions on them. Um, some of them even have um, like a, like a greener cross bolt. And obviously greeners um, have that, they have the rib extensions too. Yeah. But um, both those makers went over to the, the Purdy bolts underneath. So the Purdy bolt is basically nowadays, every side by side shotgun locks up that way for the most part, you know? Yeah. I feel uh, like I see that mentioned a lot. You know, it's, it's all when they're describing, anybody's describing an action, it's yeah. Purdy underbolt system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, once that system, um, once the uh, Purdy's patent on that expired and it, it became, uh, you know, it went into 
um, general use, yep. pretty much everybody adopted it because it's a, it's a very simple, reliable way to lock up the guns. Um, if it's fitted properly and done well, you really don't need much more. Uh, I've always, you know, the rib extensions and stuff that other people use, whether or not those are really necessary is questionable. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just a matter of sort of time has proven that the Purdy Underbolt's just the greatest way to go. So the Purdy Underbolt system, would that be considered basically a double lock system, like two locks? Uh, or not, or, or would that be a stretch? Cause I'm trying to remember. I'm, well, I, mean, I wouldn't consider it that because, okay. but I, it's but the they same used mechanism. to be like, yeah, but I, but makers, some makers used to say like, I think WC Scott used to say that some of their guns were like triple bolting and I'm not, I don't remember exactly how they counted them. They probably counted, you know, if, so if you're, if you're in doing that, what you were trying to do is probably promote having the most lockups as possible to yes. make things sound strong. Yep. So they probably counted both of them. Yeah. I personally wouldn't count both of them. And of course, you know, there are guns. I've seen guns with purdy bolts where the guns weren't fitted really well. And it's not, and, and both of those bolts, uh, the bolt wasn't engaging both bites completely. Yeah. So again, it comes down to how you fit all these things together. Like a Parker just has one little tiny bite on the back. You know, it, it, it's sort of like half of a pretty bolt bite setup, and those guns lock up fine. Yeah, a lot of those have the doll's head rib extension too. Yeah, the doll's head, but whether or not that does anything is is questionable. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, the, it, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot to hold the barrels to the action. Let's put it that way. I okay. mean, and I think a lot of makers they added additional features. Um, you know, as a way to distinguish themselves, yeah. um, whether or not, you know, you really needed that. I don't know. But. I was angling towards, I've heard people say, well, this gun's got a third bite, right? You've got, they've Correct. got a third you know, bite, which is yeah, yeah, the yeah. rib extension or the greener cross bolt or something in there, which, you know, again, I, I understand why a manufacturer would do that. And I absolutely understand why a consumer would look at that and feel good, you know, kind of smile. Oh, I've got the third bite on this gun. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. So when Pur- like Purdy would say, um, Purdy put third bites on their guns, and they're absolutely counting the bites on the those lumps. They were counting that as one, two, and then they're adding a third. And that was actually uh, kind of up in the area where uh, a fox has its locking mechanisms. Yeah. It was done differently. But that that was the idea. And then you're right about the numbers. They were counting them that way. And, yeah. Uh, so that's what that was about. Well, down into the weeds a little bit there, but I couldn't help myself. It's I, I definitely, I love that stuff. Um, so to kind of summarize the, the Fox article, I, people should absolutely read it. You go into, you, you cover things more. You don't go as deep as maybe we did on the conversation today, but you cover things in a more thorough manner. But ultimately what you have are two different guns and both of them have appeal in their own very way. And you talk about your preferences, your likes, dislikes, but you're very clear about the fact that they really are two different guns. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're completely different guns. And, uh, uh, you know, they both have their merits. And I think the, uh, they both have their, uh, their drawbacks. And I just, you know, like I said, I think the, uh, I think the original one has, has more drawbacks. But I should also say that I've owned a lot of foxes. You know, and I love that. I love that history. I love the romance and the nostalgia. I've owned lots of American guns, and 
I really, I understand that feeling you get from them. Yeah. And, and I think I told you this, you know, the, I, so I have a 16 gauge a grade right now, Fox original one. Yeah. It's pictured um, in the magazine. Yeah. That one in the magazine. And I got sucked into the romance and bought the damn thing. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was like, why did I buy this thing? Uh, <laughs> you know, because it's just, once you, once you get over that, uh, once you get past the myth and you actually consider the gun, you actually look at it and eh, you're just kind of like, eh. The amount of money these things cost, you can get a, you can get more gun for your money. We have talked about dimensions. We definitely talked about dimensions of the old guns. Typically, you see a lot of drop, and we have talked about that. In yeah, pre- a lot in of drop, pre- short stocks. Yeah. That's the biggest. In the regardless of the gun's condition, I mean, the, a lot of guys just simply you can't shoot them very well. And if you want to go out and restock them, it's going to cost you three to four thousand dollars to get it done right. Yeah. So. Uh, so there's a problem right there. I mean, that's probably the single biggest advantage the new Fox has is that it's, it has a longer stock, it's a higher stock. So it's more modern dimensions yep. that more guys can shoot well. Okay. So there's no messing around. You can just buy the thing and chances are you're going to shoot it well. Other than that, the new Fox has, you know, the barrels, you can shoot steel through them. Um, right. you can't shoot steel through an old Fox. You got to put bismuth through it. The old Foxes, you know, a lot of them have short chambers. You're taught now you're into special ammo, all that kind of stuff. You can shoot more, you know, uh, off the shelf ammo out of the new Fox. It's that kind of stuff that I like about it too, because it, to me, it's a much more versatile gun. It's a gun that I could take anywhere I wanted to go. I could shoot anything with it. I wouldn't have to worry about it too much. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice gun. I wouldn't want to abuse it, but it's not old. The other thing about it, it's replaceable. So, you know, if I, when I travel, if I send my guns out on a plane or however I get them there, if the gun gets destroyed, if you destroy the new A-grade, I'm going to be, you know, it'll be insured. I'll get my money back and I'll go buy something else. But if you have a classic gun and it gets destroyed, you might get some money out of it. But trying to find another one is very difficult. Sure. So that's why, I, you know, any gun that I travel with, I try to keep it as, I don't want to say disposable, but I should say as replaceable as possible. Yeah, well, I think that definitely goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier in that if somebody is walking into this, let's say they've caught the itch for side-by-side, want to shoot a bird gun that's a side-by-side, and they aren't yet enamored by the history and the nostalgia and the allure. I mean, walking into a gun like the Savage Fox A-grade or the RBL is absolutely, uh, you would do very well for yourself uh, carrying one one, one of those guns in the field. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you go, go out and buy an old one too and go out and buy sure. an old one and try it out. And yeah. for me, you know, that's how I got into this. My first, uh, you know, my first shotgun, uh, my first double barrel shotgun was a, a Fox model B. After that, the first sort of what I would consider my real sort of nice vintage gun was an old Fox Sterlingworth. I've owned a bunch of them. I've owned super Foxes. I've owned, uh, a grades, B grades, you know, 16 gauge, 12s, 20s. I've owned a lot of them, and it's sort of through those experiences that I've come to appreciate what the new Fox is, sure. you know? And I think, you know, for a lot of guys, a lot of guys, will, you know, are going to think I'm, you know, full of BS because they just like the old guns, which yep. is cool. I know guys who have bought the old guns, and they've restocked them and done all this upgrading to them so they can actually shoot the things. If you want to go down that path, that's fantastic, but it's going to get expensive, and you're not going to get your money back, so... I'm too frugal and practical to do that. Yeah. 
that is where you just, we just have to say, you know, to each their own, you know, whichever way, whichever way you want to go is that's absolutely available to you. That opportunity is available to go and grab one of the old ones and have it completely restored and restocked. And I've seen some really nicely done projects like that, which, which are very cool. They're not cheap, but you can, you can absolutely get a, you can have a, you can have a great gun that way too. Yeah, no, you can, if you want to go down that path and, uh, and you still have the nostalgia, which, you know, yeah. It's a tremendous part of, uh, you know, for me, it's a tremendous part about hunting grouse and being out in the woods and stuff. So, yeah, uh, you know, I get it. And it's, you know, it's great to shoot all the old American guns as long as you can hit stuff with them or you don't mind missing, which is kind of where I am with them. Yeah. I figure yeah. if I'm going to use one, I'll probably miss. Yeah. Well, that was, that was fun, Greg. I know that we had more on our agenda, but we will just leave it. I guess we'll have to leave it there and we'll leave it as a reason to have you back on and we'll slightly tease it. There's another story wholly different and unique from the, the Fox and the Savage Fox A grade story, but it is somewhat similar. And we, uh, we're going to talk about that next time and more. So Greg Elliott, of dogsanddoubles.com. Is that still the best place for people to go and check out your work? Yeah, dogsanddoubles.com. I'm on Instagram, you know, at dogsanddoubles. Uh, but yeah, go there. You can, you know, I post, you know, my good guns of the week, five doubles you don't want to miss, you know, stuff that I've seen on the market. You can get deals. I put stuff up about auctions that are happening where you can get bargains. And then I just write about guns that I see. I write about dog stuff. You know, write about hunting and keep people posted on what's up with me and my pointers and all sorts of stuff. Well, I really appreciate it, Greg. I always enjoy having you on. I We always hear from listeners that love the conversations that we have with you. So thank you so much for your time. You have a great rest of the summer, buddy, and we will talk soon, all right? Great. Thanks a lot, Nick, and uh, thanks for having me on, and thanks to all your listeners. Thanks, Greg. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dr. Callers, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, Dakota 283 Kennels, and Trinity Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, share the podcast post. You can be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs check out gun dog yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes